All right. Welcome back, everybody, to Reclaim the Present podcast. I have a local special guest in my community. It is such an honor and a privilege to introduce Miss Christina Spivak Hogan. She's a mother of six. She's an entrepreneur, a musician, and she's the pro- program director of Percussion for Kids. And that's in Oswego, Illinois. Ladies and gentlemen, Christina. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's it's such a pleasure. I'm glad we were able to get this on the calendar. And, you know, how you and how you and I first connected, I know my wife reached out to you for my son to start taking drum lessons. And then I think the first time we met was at one of his classes. I believe so. I remember you came to the studio and I was telling you a little bit about the program, how it worked. And somehow we got on the subject of my family life. I think at the time I was going through some behind the scenes chaos. And so as a disclaimer, I had let you guys know, like, this is going on. So if ever I'm hard to reach, that might be why. And that is how you said, oh, we should have you come on the podcast. And I was so excited. And I'm really glad to uh, finally have this happening. Yeah, absolutely, Christina. And, you know, to to be fair, I, I was I was intrigued to have you on the podcast because you you create that metal that model of the school of rock, you know, in, in my mind and um, or, or you and your family create that that model. And uh, I I was intrigued by that. And then when you just shared a little bit of your backstory from like, and you weren't sharing it as like a poor me, you were just like, Hey, just, just to let you know, I'm going to have to cancel because you know, we're going to head off to the hospital for, for my son. Sorry, I'm doing this last minute. And you know, it made all the parents like, okay, well, what is going on here? Um, what now Luke is how old? He is coming up on 21 months. Wow. I think. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Every day with him is just such a blessing and um, he's thriving. He's doing a wonderful, wonderfully right now and couldn't be more proud of him. Now, just to, just to unpack this a little bit. So you're a mother of six. What are the ages of your children? My oldest is 13. Okay. She was born of nine. Um, then she was joined by her sister, who is currently 11. Um, her brother is uh, nine, coming up on 10 later this year. Um, then comes my fourth born, and he is currently four years old. Then his sister, who is three, and Luke is my youngest special little guy. And uh, he is really, we say our grand finale, but he's uh, 20 months right now. I, I mean, to, to, to the audience abroad, listen to this. We, we have an entrepreneur, a musician, and a program director, and a, a successful mother of six. I've, I've seen these children. They're beautiful. I, I mean, you're amazing. Oh, gosh. Thank you. I, I uh, can't take all the credit. They, they are well-supported by parents who love them um, other than me. They, we have our mixed family. And so my oldest three, I share with my former spouse and his wife Okay, and they help support and raise not only the three we have in common, but really all nine of the kids between our two households. So, um, you know, my kids can each say they have so many siblings and in many ways, we're a really strong team together Four parents, my husband included. And, um, so I, I don't take any, I don't take all the credit for sure, but yeah. I am 
so proud of each of my kids. They really are resilient, um, good people. And as they get older, I've almost started enjoying hanging out with them. And there will certainly be tough days. Who knows? That could be when I pick them up from school later. But yeah. <laughs> um, for the most part, they really have uh, been a, a true joy. And I can't imagine life without and without all six of them. I mean, that's, that's really cool. And we'll definitely get into the, the, the condition that Luke experiences and, and that you and the, he and the family deal with, uh, a little bit later, but I, I think to, to just bring it back, where, where did you grow up? I grew up in nearby Yorkville, Illinois. We okay. lived here in 1990. Okay. And very small town. I think we had one gas station, one elementary school. It was, you know, very small. And so I grew up going to Yorkville schools Okay. and graduated from Yorkville high school in 2005. Okay. And now being that you're in a family business of musicians and you're the program director teaching drums and is it other instruments or is it just the percussion? I am a percussion instructor. Percussion. And um, so anything you hit to make a sound is what we always say. Yeah. And so that's a pretty big family of instruments. And yeah. I'm definitely busy. I also learned violin on the side, but wow. my specialty is percussion. Okay. And did you just grow in, grow up and grow into a family of musicians? Mom and musician, dad? I, yeah. My, my father plays drums. Okay. His father played drums. And one day we sat down and did the genealogy. And we discovered that my siblings and I are the seventh generation of percussionists in Holy our God. family line. Yeah. And so that's our one uh, our one claim to fame that I don't think anyone has ever <laughs> been able to top. Uh, my kids are now the eighth generation. And so I did grow up learning percussion as part of life. My father taught me from a young age. I was learning rudiments as a little kid. Mm. We had drum sets in our basement growing up. So my dad would teach every Saturday morning in our basement. Okay. Home from school, I'd get to sleep in and then all the drumming would start. And so I'd go downstairs and there were student moms in the living room. And I was like, oh, hi. Um, but it was a big part of my life because of the fact that my dad did it and he wanted us to know it too. Was it a slow to warm or a love at first sight for you? It was slow to warm. I, I almost kind of resisted it for a while uh, because oldest child wants to do her own thing. That was me for sure. I picked up the violin after a year and a half of begging, can I please play the violin? And they were like, well, okay, but you're a percussionist. And I said, okay, okay, I'll do both. And so they let me pick a violin and take lessons. And I was in the orchestra and the band go going through high school. And so, um, I continued to learn percussion through means through school from, from dad. And I'm so glad I did because what I've turned it into today was really unexpected. I would not have thought I would combine my teaching background with what I know of percussion, but I can't imagine it any other way now. Well, and I, I absolutely love that, Christina, because you, there's so many elements that you bring to the table when you're teaching the students the marching band experience, the orchestra experience, which that is just a wealth to teach children and, and to really get them to diversify this art, this craft. Absolutely. I find myself coming up with teachable moments from 
small moments of my own past. And I didn't go to school in college to study music. I, I like you said, I have a background in elementary education. So okay. I'm certified K through eight in elementary school settings. Um, but my specialty in college wasn't music. My educational background comes from learning outside of school, learning from my father. And so I do, though, have the experience of being a music student. And I have passed that along to many of my students, especially as they get a little bit older, like, um, you know, your son is still young and we're learning the basics. But later in fifth grade, if he says, hey, I want to be in school band or I'm thinking about adding an instrument to what I can do or um, I want to join this group outside of school. Those are those are cool things that I can speak to because I did that as a kid. Mm -hmm. And so I, I feel like I have come up with a pretty unique way of passing music along to the next generation. And the best part is I really enjoy it. I never feel like I'm at work when I'm here ever. Oh, that's <laughs> cool. Like, are you, when are you coming home? I'm like, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> well, so how many years did you teach for? I'm in my, well, teaching in general. Teaching I, I in general, yeah. At IU in um, 2010. And I decided right away, I'm just going to kind of put this teaching degree on the shelf. I'm not going to use it unless I need to. I want to be a mom. So I had my first two kids and it was after my first two kids that I said, you know, I really want to do something outside of the home, just mm -hmm. something. Sure. Um, I loved being a mom, but it was a little isolating. And I think all moms can speak to that a little bit. Totally. Um, yeah. And especially when they're little, they were two and maybe six months and it was <laughs> oh, it's isolating so, for sure. Oh, it is so isolating. I tell people constantly when they go, Oh, you have six kids. I'm like, two was the hardest. Those were my most difficult days. Wow. And ironically, that's when I started my business. So in 2012, my dad and I were sitting around and he said, you know, I teach kids. He, at this point he had now, um, had a well-established studio here in Oswego, okay. but he didn't start teaching kids till about fourth or fifth grade. And even that was a little on the young side for him. He okay. Teaching the older kids. Sure. And that was really his gift. His strong point was middle school and up. And he was always turning kids away saying, gosh, you seem great. But A, I don't have room on my roster. And B, you know, I'm just kind of used to starting kids a little older. So call me in a few years. Mm -hmm. So what we did is we said, well, let's try this out. He said, you come here and you open a couple nights a week for lessons and you can do classes just like I do. And we will have a clear division of ages. So I'll take, you know, he said for me to take kindergarten through fifth grade. Yeah. And at sixth grade, they could go to him. And I said, oh, okay, that could be cool. And I figured I would pick up maybe two nights a week just as a little side gig. Um, and if I made enough money to cover the gas to get there, that'd be great. Sure. And it actually took off. People were really excited about it because there exists, even today, few opportunities for kids to learn music in kindergarten beyond a more play-based kind of a place. And my, my goal was to be fun and developmentally appropriate, but mm -hmm. also to instill musical content and mm -hmm. some meat behind it. Um, and so that's what we did. We did the small groups and month over month, I had more kids and more students were signing up and I was finding that I was getting kind of busy. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point, I realized I have all these students now and I've never advertised. They're all just talking to each other. And that 
continues to be true outside of my little Facebook page that I occasionally throw 20 bucks at for getting bigger reach. Yeah. I really don't advertise. And that's really the best part is that people come here and they say, we've heard good things. And, um, you can't put a price on the, the way you make people feel when they come in the door. Yeah. And I consider that me as a teacher is more than just saying something like, oh, you're doing great with your studies. Sometimes I have kids who come in and they need a pep talk more than they need a lesson about quarter notes and eighth notes. And <laughs> if I can turn that kid's day around and make them feel like they're competent and useful and they can, they're smart. I feel like that's part of my job just as much as teaching music. So um, oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I do. That's how I got here. I now have my own studio because we needed the space. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I am now teaching six days a week and it is really a great kind of busy. I think at some point soon, I'm going to have to either hire help mm-hmm. or say, um, sorry, now I have a way to do. <laughs> Could you please so, hire help and, and just train the help because we love you open. I know. I know. I'm training my youngest, my oldest, I'm sorry, who is almost 14. She's begging to have a job. And I'm like, girl, you have your whole life to work, but she wants to go get a job at like a ice cream shop. I'm like, come help me. Yeah. (laughs) She can play. She knows this place inside and out. So we'll see. Maybe we'll have our first um, precussion for kids employee by the end of the year. (laughs) Yeah. And I love to hear that things are going so well, right? Uh, oh, yeah. We've had a lot of fun together. Each of my classes, um, they come in the door and they're always happy to be here. And that's so motivating for me as a teacher. Be like, oh, what am I going to show them today? When there's five kids in a room, they occasionally need a little guidance and that social element. But that's one of the great things about the way I, I set it up, I think, is that they come here and they learn something. But there's a group element where they're also learning from one another, too. So. And now getting out of the classroom, you guys take it to that school of rock level and you actually do concerts. We do. So um, my father's studio is still swinging down the street and his program is busy as mine is too. Um, My brother is becoming more involved on the street. He is going to fill dad's shoes as dad's getting ready to retire. Okay. So I couldn't be more thrilled about that because... um, you know, who better for me to work with than my own family when it comes to being able to vouch for their professionalism and their ability to teach kids well. And even just being able to take one of my graduates and be able to call them and say, Hey, here's what this kid needs. And this is what this student would really do well with. And so, um, we have at their location, a performance center too. So three times a year, my kids get to get on stage and we give them a rock and roll experience. We've got the professional stage lighting and we've got the big speakers and um, the audience is usually really full because it's excited parents and the kids love it. They're, they're a little nervous, but I think that can be a good thing Yeah, because gives them that adrenaline rush of doing their best, getting off stage and saying to me afterwards, oh, let's do that again. And I always say that our showcase days are the best days. It's really, really a fun time. I'm excited to start planning our next one, actually. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I can. And and the only reason why we didn't get the opportunity to attend is naturally our son got the flu. I mean, the kids are always sick. Uh, Uh, We'll get him up there this time, I promise. As long as he's healthy, that is. We'll we'll get him on stage. Exactly. But (laughs) I, I absolutely look forward to the concert. And we've heard from the other parents that it was just, it's always a really cool experience. 
experience. So can't wait for that. So kind of digging in now, let's, is it okay if, if we go and we talk about the pregnancy of Luke? Absolutely. Yes. Um, so Luke is obviously my sixth baby. Mm -hmm. And by the time you have your sixth baby, a lot of things are routine. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. so we waited until after Christmas time to tell the families. And at this point, everyone was like, okay, here's another kid. And, you know, they were happy. And my kids were excited. We actually waited to tell them the news um, till a little further along, just because we wanted to give them a two-part surprise. We wanted to tell them, you're getting another sibling. And we wanted to tell them it's a boy. Okay. So we'd never done that before. Usually they had been a part of like, let's find out what mom's having. And so this time it was like a double whammy. We're like, you're having a baby and it's a boy. Yeah. And they were so excited. It was really cool. Um, and so that was in 20, uh, no, 2021. That was early 2021. We're coming up on about two years since we told them about, about Luke on the way. So, um, when I was about midway through my pregnancy, everything was textbook. Everything was normal. Again, at this point, I had five completely healthy, complication-free pregnancies prior to this. Yeah, not a single problem. I And I always used to think to myself, I am really blessed and lucky. And not everyone is to be able to say that they can have five healthy kids. Right. And I'm fully aware of the struggles that other women have gone through, A, to get pregnant, um, and B, to have healthy babies and healthy selves at the end of it. So to me, I was both going through things casually because I was so used to being pregnant. (laughs) But at the same time, thinking to myself, gosh, how lucky I am that this happens to me so easily. I'm tired and maybe a little grouchy, (laughs) but you know, for the most part, this is all textbook. This is all just another baby that I'm going to have. Yeah. And so I, um, I was taking a medication that has a side effect, potential side effect of a heart problem for the baby and very minuscule risk. So that earned me what they call a level two ultrasound, which I had done before I had been on this medication for several years. And so I thought to myself, Oh good. I'm going to get like extra cute pictures because I get to go to the, you know, the higher level maternal fetal medicine specialist for this. So yeah. So off I went to Copley. It was a February morning about two years ago. And the plan was that I was going to go get this ultrasound done. Then I was going to go grab myself some lunch. Then I was going to go to the studio, get some work done. I was going to teach. I was going to go home done and done. Everything's fine. And so I get to the doctor's office and they did this intake. And I remember thinking, Oh, this is so annoying because what they do is when you go to maternal fetal medicine, you are there as a brand new patient each time. Mm. And so they want your entire pregnancy history again, even though you've been there before. Oh, and wow. so I go through five pregnancy histories. They wanted baby's weight. They wanted uh, gestational age at birth. They wanted what kind of labor did you have? Did you have this medication? When, I mean, were there any pregnancy complicated? And I remember the answers coming out of my mouth were no, fine, healthy, 
Yes, no complications. And the nurse said to me, we love patients like you. <laughs> and I said, thanks. I'm, I said, and I remember joking back and I said, I hope I'm the most boring case you have all day. And so after they did this little intake thing, they took me back to the ultrasound room and I'm laying there on the table and they have this big TV on the wall because, you know, they, they want parents to be able to see things when there's concerns, I'm sure. So I'm sitting there and I'm looking at the screen and I have no medical background whatsoever. Um, however, I do know what a good ultrasound looks like because I've seen a lot of them of my own. And I remember looking at the ultrasound going, his legs look a little weird. And I'm like, oh, must be the angle. There's, you know, what do I know? I'm a, I'm a drum teacher. I don't interpret ultrasound. <laughs> right. And I've got my phone out. And, you know, the ultrasound tech is not allowed to tell you anything. They're just getting their pictures and then the doctor's going to come in. So she's doing her thing. And with one eye, I'm watching the screen because it's cool. Um, but, you know, some of it's a little boring when they, they're like, oh, we're going to measure each quadrant of his heart and everything. And so I'm on my phone literally looking for places to get a coffee after all this because I'm so already done with this appointment. Yeah. And the ultrasound lady says, um, doctor will be in soon. And so she, she left the room and I'm in there and it's dark and I'm on my phone doing whatever. And doctor comes in and she sits down and she goes, all right, let me take a look here. And I'm like, that's weird. Normally they just page through the images, but okay, maybe she's just really thorough. So she goes through every single piece of the ultrasound again. And she's very quiet. And she said, Christina, did you have any prenatal testing done? And I said, no, I'm 34, so I'm right at the cutoff. Because at 35, they call you advanced maternal age. Mm -hmm. And then they say, go get testing, genetic testing. Sure. Goes, oh, okay. And I'm like, that's really weird. I've never been asked that before. And um, then she said, let me show you something. And my heart just sunk. And even now, I feel like my, <laughs> my blood's going cold. Like, that was the feeling. I just went cold. Yeah. And she said, do you see how his face, we can't see a nose? And I'm like, yeah, I, I kind of do. And she said, and take a look at his legs. And that's when I'm like, oh my gosh, I did see something weird. And she said, his legs have some bowing here. And I said, oh, well, what does that mean? Now I've heard of kids being born club footed. Um, and I thought, okay, we can get through that. We'll fix his legs. And I I said, um, oh, so does he have club feet? She said, yeah, he does. And she said, but my concern is that this is a part of a more um, complicated diagnosis. Hmm. And I immediately burst into tears. So yeah. suddenly I did not shit about the coffee anymore. I'm like, okay, <laughs> what now? Like, how could this, this is it? Actually, I remember thinking, this is it. I have had five healthy babies and I just pushed my luck. That this is all my fault. How could I have? thought that my luck would just continue. Uh, this is going to be horrible. And so I burst into tears and she says, um, it's okay. We're going to get you through this. And I'm thinking, yeah, you'll get me through this. What about my baby? Yeah. Um, and I said, I remember blurting out, I don't care what's wrong. I'm not giving up on him. We're not, we're not going to terminate. So please don't talk to me about it. That's what I said. And she said, absolutely not. We won't. And they never brought it up again. Never Good for you. Um, which I thought was so respectful and kind. Um, I don't know if they put it through all the charts or what, but no one ever at any point brought it up again. <laughs> and so I said, is my baby going to die? And she said, I don't know. And she said, 
um, he has a condition that might be, that could be lethal. Wow. And that word lethal just still just cuts. It's, it's just such, you're there for this new life and they're using the word lethal. And you're just thinking like, Oh, I feel this baby kicking me right now. How could you be using that word? Yeah. And so I said, well, what do we do? What do we do? And, and she said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go one day at a time. And she held my hand. She was just so compassionate. And I later learned this doctor really had a reputation for this. And I said, you give bad news for a living. You are a maternal fetal medicine specialist. How bad is this? And she said, Christina, I don't know. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is horrible. So I said, what do we do first? And she said, well, we need to do an amniocentesis and we need to find out what we're dealing with here. And I said, okay, all right. And um, we booked an amnio for Friday and it was Tuesday. And I remember thinking, uh, how am I going to wait till Friday to get this done? And then how am I going to wait for these results? And um, I just, she just kept saying one day at a time, that's how we are going to do it. And you're going to be okay. And she kept saying, you're going to be okay. And I just kept thinking, I'm sure I will, but I don't care about me right now. You know, I, I care about this little life and yeah, this is my sixth baby, but I love this kid like my first or my second and all of them. You know, this yeah. is no, there's no birth order differentiation in how you love your kids. Yeah. And so, um, so I left and I got in the car and I was given this discharge sheet and it just listed all the abnormalities they saw. And it was just bowed legs, no fetal na- uh, nasal bone present. Um, his hands were clenched in a certain way that they said they suspect a trisomy of some sort. Um, so I did what any rational mother in 2021 would do and started Googling. (laughs) And I I joked with my doctors later that I was a responsible consumer of the internet. I was not reading mommy blogs. I was not reading GoFundMe pages. I was only reading Mayo Clinic and respected publications on what this could be. And I was just typing in his combination of symptoms. And um, after a couple of days, I had myself convinced that he had what's called Edwards syndrome, which okay. is a trisomy chromosomal disorder. And indeed it really could have been based on what they saw, particularly his hands, the way they were clenched um, in trisomy 18, I believe it is, is fatal almost every single time. And so I went for the amniocentesis that Friday and they did it. And the doctor came in on her day off to do it. In fact, I was told she was supposed to go on vacation that day when she came in. Um, I had written a Facebook post the day we found out about this. And apparently someone saw it and sent it to her. And she said that she was really heartbroken for us and she wanted me to be the one to do the amnio. And so she came in and, um, her name's Dr. Paula Malone, and she is out of Rush Copley in Aurora, and she is an amazing human being. Um, so the amniocentesis was sent off, and we were told to wait for two weeks, which was absolutely agonizing. Um, I had to continue going to work, and by this point, all my students knew I was having a baby. And so I actually ended up taking a day off just because at one point it got so difficult to go through normal life and act like everything was fine. Um, and I decided it was time to message all my parents and tell them what was going on. So I sent an email out that basically said, hi, um, you're, you're receiving this message with a personal note today. Um, as you all know, I'm 
excitedly expecting my sixth child. It's, um, you know, I, I have to tell you though, that things are not looking great and I may at any moment not be in for a while because they couldn't tell these doctors couldn't tell me if I was going to wake up one day and he'd be gone. They didn't know what he had. So, um, I said, in, in the interest of remaining professional, I'm letting you all know about what's going on so that you don't get the wrong idea if I have to suddenly cancel or if I suddenly need to take a few weeks away. And um, the outpouring of support and love I received from that email, I, I occasionally go back and read some of those responses I received because I was buried in support that day. Great. The, Parents kept reminding me, you're, you know, you're our kid's teacher and that's awesome, but we're parents too. And we get it. And that hadn't really crossed my mind. I mean, I knew obviously these people are parents too, but for them to be on my level and be like, Hey, it's just drum lessons. Please take care of your family and yourself. We're here when you're ready. And if you need to step out, we totally get it. And so for some reason, you know, that that outpouring of love and support kept me going for those two weeks. Um, sometimes a mom would just come up with her kid, drop him off, give me a hug and, and be on her way. She wouldn't say anything. Cause I had said, I'm not going to tell the students about this. I'm yeah. like, there is absolutely no reason that they need to worry about this at all. So I'm not going to say a thing, but I am letting you know. And that's, you know, that's why I'm sending you this email. And so um, we're coming up now on the two week point where I'm supposed to get this response from, the lab, which is doing these tests. And I'm anxiously checking my phone. And I've been told, like, if you don't hear from them by three, you're not going to hear from them at all that day. So imagine my shock when at 4 p.m., as I'm pulling up to the studio to start teaching, my phone rings and it's the doctor. Oh, boy. Um, I know. And I'm thinking to myself, here we go. I'm, I don't know what I'm going to, how the hell I'm going to go in there and start teaching paradiddles right now if this is bad news. They called me up. And I said, what would you find? And they said, your son does not have any type of chromosomal disorder. There's no Down syndrome. There's no trisomy of any kind. And he is chromosomally normal. And I said, oh, so he doesn't have Edwards syndrome. And they said, nope. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's amazing. Like this, we that that means that he doesn't have what I was convinced he had. I mean, I had befriended other moms with the condition. I was already in the support groups. I was so certain. And even the doctor herself said, that's kind of what we were expecting based on what we could see on the ultrasound. Hmm. But then she had to level with me again. And she said, the bad news is we still don't know what this is. And we saved some of your cells from the amnio and we're now going to send it out for what's known as a skeletal dysplasia panel. She said, clearly there is something going on skeletally. That is why his legs are curved. Um, that is why we don't see a nasal bone. Um, she said, those are usually indicators of a, cr a chromosomal condition, but since we know they're not now we need to go explore. Um, we need to go explore skeletal dysplasias. So I said, Okay, how long is that going to take? She said two weeks. And I'm oh. like, <laughs> okay, so so I call up my husband and I'm in tears and I'm like, our son does not have anything wrong with him chromosomally. He's normal. Can you believe it? And so we had like this minute to be grateful and we just were just rejoicing by this news. 
But at the same time, we're like, well, then what the hell is this? Yeah. And so I taught, I got through my lessons. I decided I'm just going to take this moment and be happy about what we know it's not because those were some bleak diagnoses it could have been. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, skeletal dysplasia. And I'm thinking to myself with my non, non-medical background, I'm like, okay, so he's got a skeleton problem. Well, um, we can fix that. You know, you don't need your skeleton to be perfect in order to survive and we'll help him. We'll do, if he can't walk, we'll get him a wheelchair. We'll love him no matter what. And so we're waiting and we're waiting. And so I decided to start researching skeletal dysplasias. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, this is going to be, um, we'll be able to narrow it down from here. And so I find out there's over 200 types of skeletal dysplasia. 200. 200. Wow. And you go to this website where they're all listed. It's like a medical journal of some type. And you can click each one and they'll give you a brief overview of it. And so I'm thinking to myself, gosh, I'm better off just waiting to find out what this is rather than becoming familiar with all 200 of these. So it didn't keep me from perusing the website anyhow. So I'm clicking each one and I'm reading it and it's saying like this, this is a feature of that. And here's a feature of this. And then I get to this one. I I get to this one that said it starts with a C and it's horrifically lethal. And I thought to myself, what, why would a skeletal dysplasia be lethal? Um, and I'm reading about it and this is just a disease from hell. It's, their legs are bent and they don't have, um, sometimes they don't have that facial structure that they noticed. Um, beyond that though, their rib cages are so small that their lungs can't expand and they suffocate the moment they're born. Um, another horrible twist to it is they can't produce a certain type of cartilage that we all have in our trachea. We have rings of cartilage in our trachea that mm-hmm. hold our airway open. These babies are born without it. And so even if the air could get to their, their lungs, their lungs then are too small to inflate and they're just born to die. These little humans with this, this disease that starts with C and I, I sounded it out and it looked like campomelic dysplasia. And so I said, all right, I don't care what the diagnosis is. I just don't want that one. I don't want the one that looks like it starts with the word camp. As long as it's not that one, I'll take 199 others, but not that one. And so about three days later, um, the phone rings and I'm sitting in the little glider that we had just set up because at that point I thought we're, we're probably going to bring a baby home. This is looking okay. Skeletal dysplasias might be okay. The phone rings. I'm sitting in the glider and it's the geneticist. And she says, I want to call you with the results of your child's skeletal dysplasia panel. And she said, it looks like he is missing a gene that is found on what's called the SOX9 gene, S-O-X-9. And um, that is a marker for a specific kind of skeletal dysplasia. And she said, it's called campomelic dysplasia. Oh, shit. Just... I just started weeping and I said, you've got to be kidding me. It can't be that there's 199 others. How sure are you? And she said, we're very sure. And she continued to say that this would be confirmed upon birth, but that the blood work really is accurate and that the cells they have really tell the whole story. And I had a thousand questions for her immediately, but she couldn't answer any of them. She's just the one that reads what comes out of the DNA and delivers horrible news, apparently. Um, but she, um, 
She continued on to say, your, your maternal fetal medicine specialist will reconnect with you and we'll, we'll, we'll discuss what's going to happen and how we're going to continue your treatment and all that stuff. So, um, that was another night I called into work. (laughs) I said, I can't go, I can't go teach drums right now with this. And at that point I realized my son is not going to survive because, um, a 95% fatality rate at birth is what is the, that's the going rate of death for this condition. And, um, I ended up back at the maternal fetal medicine specialist and funny enough, I saw that woman again who was doing my intake and had said to me, we love patients like you when they're so boring. And I think she remembered me because she just gave me this look like, Oh God, there goes that poor girl who just got the shock of her life. Mm -hmm. And um, so we did another ultrasound and the doctor was happy to see that actually it looks like his nasal bone was now visible. So that cleared itself up. Um, and his hands finally opened. So I'm like, you little turd, like after all that, (laughs) but it was clear that his legs were pretty deformed. Um, but you know, when it comes to this condition, that's not the problem. That's the problem is the airway and the ability to breathe. Um, it's a lethal disorder because of those features. Okay. And so, um, at this point, I said to her, how many babies have you delivered with this condition? And she said, none. And I said, none. And um, I can't remember her exact response, but she said something that led me to believe that she didn't have any patients who carried to term. Mm -hmm. And so that, of course, hit me too, because I'm like, wow, this is a baby that some people just don't even think is worth all this. I mean, what am I doing? But I knew that I had to try. I I had to, if I'm going to survive this, I have to know I did everything I could. Yeah. And he's going to die. He picks the day. So, um, it was determined that my prenatal care was going to continue as planned because there was nothing wrong with me. Um, my husband, Andrew and I were both genetically tested and it was discovered that neither of us carried this gene and that it was it's considered an inherited gene, um, but it is not one that can be predictably passed along and it can be, it could be nowhere in our family tree and still occur. And that was the case for us. They said, even if you had six more babies, there is not an elevated risk of this happening again. (laughs) And I was like, okay. And it, it did little to comfort me, but it was just more information, I guess. Um, So at this point now we're coming up on his due date, which is in June and everything was normal looking from the outside. You know, I could feel him moving. Everything was normal, but it was such a sickening kind of normal. It was like, I was his life support. And the second he's born, that's it. It's over for him. We saw a team of doctors through Rush University Medical Center in Chicago, where we were then referred because they had the highest level of care that they could give. And it was determined after weeks of back and forth that I would have my first C-section ever. (laughs) I had no C-section history, but um, they wanted to have as many specialists in the room as they could get because of his, they weren't sure what they were going to get until they put eyes on it. They could see the ultrasounds. At one point they did an MRI 
And I remember the girl doing the MRI who was like the machine tech. She looked at it in there and (laughs) got all these pictures. And when I came out of there, she said, you know what? That was the most active baby I have ever seen on an MRI before. And I'm like, oh, I'm not surprised. He was really moving around. And she said, oh, girl, he's going to be fine. And I thought, that's nice, you know, Mm -hmm. cute to say. Oh, he's not going to be fine. And she kept saying, oh, he's fine. You wouldn't believe what I saw in there. He is fine. And I just was like, "Mm, okay. And so, again, doctors don't know what they're getting until that baby comes out. And they told us to be prepared for um, basically a fetal demise. You know, they said they were going to try to intubate him. um, And they would try until they couldn't try anymore. Mm -hmm. Is what they said. To me, that meant we're going to do what we can, but we have no hope here. Um, so they booked us an operating room. That was the biggest one they had. Um, there were so many people in there. They initially tried to tell my husband he couldn't be in the room because of some COVID thing. And Mm. I literally threatened to go to the local newspapers about it. And finally that got resolved. Good for you. And my, my filter was gone at this point. I'm like, really, who am I going to talk to about this? Cause I bet they're going to love this story. Local dad can't see his baby. Tekken's before he dies. Yeah, let's let's do that. Um, so they made room for him, that's for sure. And uh, the morning of his birth, we had um, a bereavement photographer lined up who oh, I could yeah. show up and take photos. Um, the organization we had chosen was Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep, which I had known through friends who lost children and they're an incredible volunteer based organization that comes and they take photos of families together with the baby, Hmm. um, usually post-mortem and the photos are all they have. And I thought, well, we have the benefit of advanced notice. Let's have this in place. And one day I bet I'll be glad I did. And I had the phone number ready to go. It was saved in my phone. Um, we had the funeral planned. I, my husband has connections personally to a local funeral director who he called and said, we're probably calling you mid, mid-June and uh, this is what we need. And please tell us how to pay for this because we don't know what to do. And he said, please don't pay for anything. Uh, just call me and we'll set it up for you. I had chosen a, um, I had chosen a casket from a company called Heaven's Game. And I remember laughing at the absurdity of being 38 weeks pregnant and searching for a casket online. And I thought, what kind of person am I that I can sit here and plan this? I had an Amazon shopping list made with all of my children's funeral outfits Mm. so that all I would have to do from the hospital bed was click complete order or whatever. And all of the outfits would show up on my porch for when we got home. Later, I realized that this was probably a trauma response and it was the best thing I could do with my helplessness. And yeah. so I realized this is not the sign of a warped human being. This is probably me just doing what I can do. And I actually later connected with some friends who said, no, that is a common thing that some women do. They plan everything because they realize so little is in their control yeah. that it, they just they do that. Instead of nesting and, and putting a crib together, you're, you're planning a funeral. And it seems so... It almost seems like you don't have hope, but for me, it was just so matter of fact. Yeah. That was how I got through those days leading up to his delivery. And I knew walking in the door that whatever was going to happen was going to be horrible. And that at least I wasn't going to have to pick funeral outfits on a time crunch. On top of it. Yeah. 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 So, um, went back to the operating room and 
they had me on the table. I I'd seen C-sections before, but I'd never had one before. Um, everyone in the room knew, obviously this is not a normal birth. Um, I was prepared in advance that it could be up to a half an hour before I would learn whether my son lived or died because they needed to take him to an adjoining room and work on him while I was being sewn up. Cause I was patient too. I kept forgetting. They're like, lady, your abdomen's open. We're putting your guts back into you. You need to lay on this table and not move. And so the anesthesiologist had said in advance, we're going to give you something to help you be calm yeah. in this moment so that you don't end up, you know, having an issue too. Yeah. And I said, well, you better have the good stuff. Cause this is not going to be a good day. And I remember walking into that room and thinking I'm taking my baby off life support. That's what this is. I'm his life support. He can breathe in there right now, but when they take him out, he won't, he won't breathe anymore. And this is it. This is goodbye. And, uh, so I laid down, they brought my husband in and he was right there next to me and had this anesthesiologist who was talking to me and he had two competent students there. Cause, um, Rush university is a teaching hospital. And so mm. I, all along, I had been very open, like, please learn everything you can yeah. from this case. This is horrific and more needs to be known about it. Um, there were less than 400 cases in the whole world of this, of this condition. Holy and most shit. don't make it birth. I know um, like a true lightning strike. Um, and so I was very like, please learn everything. If nothing else comes from this, please just study him, study me, figure out how to prevent this, how to treat it in the future. So that some mom isn't saying goodbye like I am right now. So they had these two anesthesiologist um, residents and they started the C-section procedure and they, they numbed me up good. I couldn't feel anything. It was all going the way it would. Um, and I guess apparently my son had flipped breach between my walk from the prep room to the operating table. Breach is when the baby is now, instead of being head down, he's head up. Yeah. And for a full term baby to move like that takes tremendous strength for the baby. And I remember thinking, God, what a strong kid. I can't believe a kid this strong is about to die. Mm. And they realized he was breached when they made the incision. And I heard the doctor go breach and they all changed positions because they had to pull him out differently. Okay. So they pull him out and there's no crying. I had, I hadn't even expected to hear any crying. And the anesthesiologist looked at me and I was just laying there. I, I felt numb. I almost couldn't. I couldn't even describe it. I was just laying there waiting to be told he's gone. We did everything we could and for it to be over. Um, the anesthesiologist got up and started walking across the room. He said, stay here. And I'm like thinking, yeah, okay. Um, and he, he left the residence there uh, to care for me. And he came back. My husband had gone with the baby. Um, the anesthesiologist came back and he sat next to me and he said, hey, Mom, look up at your look up at this monitor over here. And he he said, "Do you see that blue line going like this up and down?" And I said, "Yeah." And he goes, "That's your um, that's your respiratory rate. That's for your body. That's your respiratory rate." And I said, "Oh, cool. You know, I don't give a shit. But thanks for the lesson." And he goes, "No, no. I want you to know that's what your son's looks like right now." Wow. And they said. They intubated him on the first try and he's breathing. And I about lost it. I did lose it. I started crying for the first time and I said, no, 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 no. He's he, no, there's no way he's alive. Like how alive. 
And they said, we, he said, you have one rock star, um, pediatric anesthesiologist in there because she got that intubation tube in him on the first try. Wow. And I was like, no, like I was in disbelief. It was like shock of a reverse kind. Um, and so I'm laying there now and I'm just waiting for more information because at this point I have no idea what's supposed to happen next. I was prepared to be told that my baby was gone, that there was nothing more to do. Uh, and if I'm if I'm getting too talkative here, you let me know. No, you're phenomenal. I, <laughs> the, this is all the answer to one question. I got tears coming out of both sides of my eyes. It's, no, this is great. Yeah, it's, um, it, it was a heck of a memorable moment for me when that guy said that and said that's what that's what your son's heart uh, respiratory rate looks like right now. And I'm just like, how? What? And what an amazing thing he did by being the only one in the room to think this poor mom needs information, you know, and he went and came back with great news. I think he would have told me either way what was going on. He just didn't want me waiting, waiting there. um, So long story short, they stabilized him. Um, My husband baptized him right there. We have pictures of everything. Hmm. There's about 50 people all around him just doing what they needed to do, getting him hooked up to a ventilator, because at that point they wanted him to be in, under very little stress. They didn't want him even worrying about breathing on his own. So they, they had him intubated and they got him on a ventilator and then they ran um, an NG tube for feeding to get him his first, because they want him now healthy. They're like, we need to feed this kid. He's living. <laughs> um, and so they took him to the NICU. And we knew that would be where he'd go if he survived by that 5% margin. Um, but never actually thought we'd get there. I really didn't. And so I was wheeled into recovery. And uh, they brought me back to this tiny little room, almost too small for the stretcher I was on. And I remember thinking, they put me in the fetal demise room. This is the room where they put the moms who lose their babies. Oh, boy. Away from all the other moms. And I... I used to volunteer in a, in a hospital as a, as a doula, like a birth assistant. So I was familiar with this concept and I thought they really didn't think he was going to make it either. They had this room saved for me so that I wouldn't have to hear the other crying babies. And so by the end of that day, I was on my feet. I was walking to the NICU to go visit my son. And I remember I was in no physical pain despite the fact that I should have been in a lot of pain um, but to get him out was not easy because of the size of his head. And uh, they couldn't really believe that I was truthfully telling them I'm fine. Please let me go to the NICU. I need to see my baby. He's supposed to be dead. I kept saying that. And they were like, what? Um, so they did, they drugged me up really well and they let me go with my husband and maybe a nurse or two. But I remember to this day thinking, I am so overjoyed that I cannot feel a seven inch incision in my abdomen. I am walking up and down the halls. Like I'm trying to get to a late class. I just thought this, there is nothing like this high. You are going to bury your child. Just kidding. Go see him right now. And I have never, ever, ever, um, felt anything like that in my life. And so that is the story of, how Luke came into the world on June 17th, 2021. When you talk about the pregnancy, of, of course, I, 
I did not, I, I did not bear a child. I did not have a child grow inside me, but I went to, I, I went to those specific, um, y- you know, those appointments, those doctor's appointments, those things with my wife the entire time. So I could absolutely envision what it would look like to have that conversation that is right. literally a parent's worst freaking nightmare. I, I can at least I, I can least understand it up to the point where the person walks up to you and says, We gotta talk. Yeah. And beyond that, this is way over my skis. But for you to come out of a complicated surgery. They they gave me the option to labor normally, but they said we can't guarantee all these doctors aren't gonna be with another emergency. Yeah. So they didn't want why take the chance? Surprise. What? Why take the chance? Yeah. Well, yeah Do the exactly. C-section. Like, and I said, like, I can't, I've come this far. We need to give him the best of everything. And if the only way to ensure that all of these people are ready to go is for me to have him surgically, well, let's do it. It was a no brainer. It was almost like, who cares? I, I do not care. Um, I still have residual feeling of almost like numbness physically because that's how I got through those moments by putting my emotions aside as secondary thing I physically feel is I, I, I don't know if it's normal or not, but I always feel cold. Like my arms feel cold when I think of that stressor of the up and down of the whole experience, really um, almost like it's more shoulders out than waist down. It's more upper body and it's, it, it's reminiscent of how it felt to get the bad news almost, yeah. which I don't know if that's normal or not, like I said, but it's, it's kind of like a flashback to the, the worst moment, but maybe it's related to the upswing of it. I don't know. It's, it's, it feels like the release of stress, but it's, it's distinctively, I feel cold when I think about it. Mm-hmm. It's cool. It's cool because what you're, what you've just been able to do is to connect with your body and connect with your body's physiology, the the actual responses that you felt. And that's an important thing when you're releasing your body from the tension that is there, the more an individual can connect with those feelings and then connect with a positive feeling and connect with those feelings and connect with the positive feeling, it it can, it can do many, many different things. So truthfully, I've done zero therapy about any of this. Um, yeah. And it's not because I don't want to, it's the fact that with my son surviving his ordeal has come a tremendous life change. And, um, as I mentioned, we lived in the hospital for a year. Yeah. We were actually in Chicago for a year while still running the business. Wow. <laughs> um, and when he came home, it didn't get easier in some ways because we're now also his his care team. Yeah. So there now are no doctors and nurses around to do what he needs to thrive. It's all on us. So obviously self-care is tremendously important even more so now but the reality of it is you only get 24 hours in a day yep and so all that to say i would appreciate the resources because that at least takes some of the guesswork out of where to start yeah and 
cuts the time in half that's needed to put something like that in place. Yeah. So yeah, you get the amazing news. You, you go, you get to see this beautiful boy. And then as you said, you're in the hospital for an entire year while you have the children at home. What did, what did that even look like? Did you just stay at the hospital yourself or? Yeah. Well, being 2021, we were still in, you know, the throes of the end of the pandemic. So we were not allowed to have any of our children with us and they could not meet Luke, which felt like not a huge deal considering how grateful we were that he was even alive. And that gratefulness really spilled into everything, every inconvenience, every challenge, um, all of it was no big deal to me. Anyhow, yeah. my husband might report differently because it was <laughs> tremendously stressful. Um, but I just remember thinking, okay, what, well, fine, we'll figure it out. You know, with every curveball that came our way, um, Luke needed several surgeries. He had a tracheostomy placed, which is a artificial airway that was placed in his neck and allows him to breathe, which bypasses your upper respiratory system. So he doesn't breathe through his nose and mouth. He breathes through an incision in his neck, which has a tube placed. That tube keeps that sloppy airway open. Um, he weaned off the ventilator entirely. He breathes on his own. Um, the doctors believe that his saving grace was the size of his lungs, which he was born with sufficiently sized lungs and he was not born with the telltale curvature of the spine, which can also severely complicate the effects of this disease. Um, some children have to undergo severely invasive surgeries to correct curvature of the spine, especially as it relates to the airway. I have several friends with children about the same age as Luke who are going through that right now. And hmm. so there's really nothing other than happenstance to blame that he did not have, he was not born with that element of the condition. Mm -hmm. um, but he does have a tracheostomy. He does have a ventilator for airway support. So should he get sick or should he simply be tired from the work of breathing? Um, we can hook him up to that. Um, he is not on any kind of oxygen, so he's never needed oxygen. And he has a G-tube placed for nutrition. So at this point, we know that, you know, we didn't want him to eat by mouth because the risks of aspiration were too high. We were considered so lucky to have this safe airway that we didn't want to complicate it when a uh, alternative, which was the G-tube, could be considered instead. And though it was, yes, another surgery and it is not easy to feed a child that way. It's safe. It's it in his best interest. Mm -hmm. at this um, he also began having corrective casting done on his legs. And so he went through a series of eight or nine leg casts to straighten his legs and club footedness. And if you were to look at him now, you would never guess that he had those deformities at birth. And wow. he's not even, yeah, um, he will need here and there treatment for his legs as because it's his DNA that wants his legs to curve. We may need to retreat sporadically. Um, he does have a hip surgery coming up in March. 
he um, was born with one hip out of place. And that is another feature of this horrible condition is you can be born with um, displaced hips. And in his case, he only has one, which is actually worse than two because your body is not symmetrical. So he's going to have what's called a hip reduction surgery in March. And our hope is that that will be the biggest hurdle for him at this point. And they expect that he's even going to walk. So um, that's incredible. I know. I mean, to go from this baby can't even breathe to talking about him, like running around at recess someday. It's just mind blowing. I mean, um, the doctors don't know why he's doing so well. And I have continued to remind them that I want them to study him and find out why he's doing so well. Mm -hmm. Um, He was ready to come home with proper care in place at about four months old. However, Due to a nationwide shortage of nursing, they could not discharge him. Um, there were no home nurses available to us where we lived at the time. We actually, mm. at the time, we lived in a town called Maple Park, which is out by DeKalb. Okay. And just built a house out there. And, you know, Luke coming into the world really made us reevaluate life. And so we decided to sell the house. We had literally just finished building it, barely unpacked, and we sold it. Oh, and my so- gosh. Talk about like more on top. I know it was really something, um, you know, we would, our lifestyle when Luke was in the hospital was one of us would be there. My husband or I would be in the hospital with him and the other was home with the other kids. Yeah. And as I would continue to work, I would go to Chicago after my night of teaching. Mm. And so I would get there at about 10 o'clock and um, I'd leave at one or two in the morning and they would use those hours to train us to change his trach ties, which is the, the straps that hold the tracheostomy tube in place. Mm-hmm. That's a daily procedure we had to learn how to do without, um, without that tube coming out. It keeps him alive. So it's a scary procedure that we had to learn how to do. And so all of our training took place um, one of us at a time. We would just constantly switch places. We were never there together. Um, at about four months old, he was transferred from Rush University Medical Center to a uh, another hospital in Chicago called La Robita Children's Hospital, which is on the south side of Chicago, right on the lake. And La Robita is a transitional care facility, and they have um, a full staff of doctors, nurses, respiratory therapists, therapists of all kinds. And what they do is they prepare families for taking their children home and being able to care for them. And many of the kids there were simply awaiting nursing. And that was our predicament. We could not get a home nurse. So after we sold our house, we moved to Oswego where we rented a house and we thought, all right, well, let's, let's try to get a nurse out here. Cause I mean, Oswego is so much bigger than Maple Park. They'll find somebody surely. So we moved to Oswego in December And at this point we're coming up on April and there was no one. And our son is still in hospital and we were not alone. That is the predicament of so many families right now. There are no home nurses. Mm. And so finally we said, you know, no nurses in Maple park, no nurses in Oswego. Why don't we just move closer to my older kids, dad and stepmom, because they were a tremendous resource of help for us in getting the kids to school and, and doing just stuff. We couldn't just that day to day. Yeah. Just survival. I mean, they were taking them to sports practices. It was actually our children's first year of public school. 
And I knew, okay, this is something I have to give up. I always knew that might happen in the future if someone needed my attention. And here was that moment. I said, okay, off to school we go. We were, this is what we train for, kids. Off you go. <laughs> and they beautifully. Okay. Uh, and it's thanks to their dad and stepmom helping us get that to happen and getting them to school and, and helping them make that transition. And so I thought, all right, well, why don't we move out by them? Because at least then we have the proximity of our help. And if we have no nurses there, I mean, it's not worse than no nurses here. Yeah. It's better by our support system. Yeah. And so we bought a house very near them. And um, a few days after closing, they found us a nurse. <laughs> and so I thought, oh my God, you've got to be kidding me. So Luke was able to be discharged two days before his first birthday. Um, he came home. We had one nurse that provided 40 hours of care a week, and that was enough for the doctors to feel like they were discharging him to an environment that was um, safe for him. They, they didn't want him to go home with no nurse. And we were beginning talks of, OK, well, you can't keep him forever. So what can we do here? But thankfully, it didn't come to that. Um, and we were able to be discharged. And he came home to to a very, very grateful family last June. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. this this is just incredible. And, <laughs> and and then, so what, what were, you're in a, you're in a new, you buy the new house, kids are going to public school. You were able to get the nurse. What, what happens next? Is it now it's just, you had to, did you have to build a separate room for him? Did, like, what is the, What's the protocol? Yeah, for him, um, you know, we had this in mind as we were looking at homes. And of course, this was a terrible time to buy a house. Um, but in the area we were looking, it was a little bit less competitive. So we did have the opportunity to see a few homes and think about, well, what would this work? How would this work for our home and our family? We have six children and one of them needs a day nurse and he has big equipment and he needs his own space. So we actually found a home that had a great layout with a separate living room, like secondary living room. And that secondary living room has become his room. And so it's got space for his crib and all the normal baby things that he needs. But he also has several medical carts and he has a ventilator and a suction machine and a feeding uh, IV pole and tons of storage for all the supplies we get each month. We get like a box truck full of supplies each month for things he needs. Um, and unfortunately right now we do not have a nurse any longer. And so we are on the hunt to restaff and it's honestly not looking good. It's, it's so difficult to get a home nurse, but the nice thing is that he's been home long enough that my husband and I really know our stuff. Now mm -hmm. we have, responded to at least three emergencies where his tracheostomy tube came out mm. and we had to literally revive him um, while half awake in one instance because his alarms went off and we realized, oh shit, he's blue and his tube is next to him. Oh, God. Um, I mean, when you talk about recurring traumatic experiences, my husband and I both have not just his birth, but like these emergency scenarios where we have had to sit back and just breathe for for hours to recover. And it, it's like several days later after his first emergency, we were still like joking. I'm like, I'm like, have you come down yet? Are you like breathing normally? Cause I'm still completely in emergency mode. And uh, it, it was just so scary. And to think like his life is so fragile mm -hmm. that 
we can't turn our backs at any moment and sleeping is always a risk for us. You know, what if the alarm goes off and we sleep through it? And it's a high intensity lifestyle to keep him alive. Mm-hmm. But that said, there is so much to be grateful for with his case. Um, like I said, he is the least complicated case of skeletal dysplasia, campomelic skeletal dysplasia that I know of. And with so few cases in the world, it's easy to be pretty sure of that. Um, his CD friends, as we call them, have varying degrees of um, one is having a spinal fusion surgery. One has a uh, a halo device where they have the this metal, almost like a cage that's holding their spine to their head. And I look at those poor kids and I think, oh, thank God they're getting good care. And at the same time, I'm thinking, I don't know how Luke was spared that. And for all we know, someday some new complication might arise. He may grow and suddenly have a spinal problem. So he's constantly under the watch of several specialists, um, skeletally in terms of his pulmonology. Um, he has a huge care team that is always assessing his condition. And that's unfortunately going to be the case his whole life. So, um, his his healthcare has gone into the millions. Certainly, we don't make millions. I'm a drum teacher. <laughs> I don't make millions. Um, and it is through a combination of the grace of God and the taxpayers of Illinois that his care is covered. He um, he qualifies for Medicaid based on his condition alone. So he receives his care, his medications, and eventually nursing hours covered by the state in Medicaid. Um, which is the case for almost all kids with his severity of a disease. So we're really grateful for that. Um, we know that in some places in the world, these kids don't have those opportunities. And that might be why there is such a low survival rate for the condition. So that's that's the story of Luke, one day at a time, but with a bright future. You, uh, so, Christina... I- Please don't take my my silence as anything but just on respect. I mean, you you are a remarkable person, and you know just how inspiring your perspective, your value system, um, you know, just just all of those things, right? There's there's so many takeaways in this conversation. But I wanted to make sure b- before we part ways, and we can definitely have you back on with, with a, without a doubt. It'd be a, a pleasure and a privilege. Um, what? How can the greater audience help? Well, um, there's two ways that come to mind. One is practical. Luke really needs a nurse, <laughs> and I would be remiss if I did not use our conversation to spread awareness of that need. Um, home nursing is not just a convenience. It is a necessity for families like ours. Um, we have had a difficult time making things happen in our home because Luke has to either come with us, which is a tremendous undertaking, or we simply don't go. And so with a home nurse, Luke would be safely cared for while we meet the needs of our other kids. Mm-hmm. And um, we are currently with an agency, a nursing agency called Team Select, and they are recruiting for our case. 
So if any of your listeners know any RNs or LPNs who have experience with pediatric trach vent and G-tube care, we sure would love to have a conversation with them. And they can also contact Team Select directly and ask about Luke Hogan's case. Um, Even one nurse would change our lives. And it would allow me to be able to work more to make ends meet. It would allow my husband to get a full night's sleep for the first time in two and a half years because he has a much more difficult time than I do with just taking a deep breath and taking a moment for himself. Yeah. Um, he, he copes differently than I do, and I know it's taking a physical toll on him. Um, the second way people can help is just to, to be aware of families like ours that are in the world. Um, I have a lot that I could say about the fact that, you know, I'm a businesswoman. Taxes aren't my favorite thing to pay for. (laughs) But that said, how lucky are we that my son was born and the last thing I had to worry about was how to pay for his ventilator? Yeah. Um, We need to support these social services for families like mine. And, And I don't mean in handouts. I mean, just coming alongside families and saying, we support and value healthcare for kids and it is life or death for these children. Um, I have heard of families who were turned away from receiving care because they didn't have the resources available, like a program ran out or something. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Or, you know, the nursing situation, even the hospital was short staffed. There were nights at Luke's hospital where one RT, respiratory therapist, was in charge of the whole building of kids. And that's because the funding wasn't in place for these nurses to be fairly compensated. And so, of course, they need to go where they can make money to feed their families. So I'm a huge supporter now of any any support that we can give families, even through our taxes. You know, I never thought I'd say that. I've always been like, oh, let the people govern themselves and all that stuff. But this is really a human rights thing. We need to be able to help children live their best lives and support them when they're not born healthy, when they're born without working lungs. Yeah. And so I really, really, once I can catch my breath, I want to put a voice and a face on the cause of, you know, expanding health care for, for children with special needs. Um and, and just making the world a better place for kids who have these needs. Sometimes it comes down to whether or not their parents found the right resource. And again, we're no more intelligent than your average person. We were just given everything we needed. When Luke was born, a social worker came to my room and said, please sign these papers. You have no idea what they said. And that's scary. But you need to sign these right now so that you can get his health care covered so that you can stay in this hospital as long as you need. And I just started signing stuff. And she was right. I had no idea what that stuff was, but it was responsible for saving Luke's life. And so, um, so all that rambling to say, you know, if anyone knows a nurse, please let us know. But also if you are um, not local or don't know anybody that could help us personally, just be an advocate for other families you might know, because even if they look like they have it together from the outside, it's not an easy life. It's it's been very taxing on us as parents, as as professionals in the workplace. Just it has challenged us on every front, and 
you know, we're just so grateful that at the end of the day, I'm going home to my little boy. I'm not going to the city tonight to see him and find out from a stranger how his day was. I'm going to go home and I'm going to say, Hey honey, how was, how's Luke doing? And I'm going to pick him up and I'm going to give him a hug and we're going to watch a movie or something. You know, there's yeah. just nothing better than I say this and it sometimes shocks people, but I say, I have planned my child's funeral and canceled it. Yeah. Nothing bothers me anymore. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. There's, there's nothing else that needs to be said. I mean, there's the mic drop right there. I've literally quote unquote, I've planned my child's funeral and canceled it. Yep. Ladies and gentlemen, Christina Hogan. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's such, such a pleasure. What an experience with you. Thank you. And I guarantee that there's women out in this audience or men out in this audience that have dealt with complications and pregnancies that have dealt with, you know, children, you know, their own children having issues. You're touching the lives of many people with this story. And if there's anyone in the audience that has an idea that recruits in nursing services that is connected to Rush Copley Hospital out in the Aurora, Illinois market, or any of the universities, Aurora University, Wabonzi Community College, any of the nursing programs that have stayed in contact with their alumni that can put Christina and her family in touch with a home nurse option and opportunity please definitely reach out. You can reach us on email, info at relativitynetwork.com. You can hit us up on our Instagram page, which is Reclaim the Present. You can hit us up on Facebook, and we're going to post this on Facebook and just see if there's any local um, movement that we can get so we can get some feedback for Christina and we can get her in front of a home nurse it would help her family tremendously. Thank you so much for the greater audience for listening and your participation in this podcast. Building this community gets stories like Christina's and Luke's and her family's out there to bring more awareness and more support. Bye for now.